0: I told them we were gonna have sobbing Sundays and it was gonna be like a family meeting. We were all gonna get together and we were gonna complain about what made us mad that week or what was frustrating about this really messed up reality we're living in and what we miss about our old life and we could just like let it all out.
1: Welcome to Season 4 of the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here we promised an ambitious new season, and so we decided to spend some time talking about the tough stuff, the things that may send the non-NBC family and friends running to delete this podcast. But we're not afraid. We're already dealing with some tough things, so why not talk about them openly? We thought you'd agree. For the first time, we're launching a season with four episodes focused on grief, loss, and end-of-life planning. So often we're faced with a society around us that doesn't like to talk about death and grief, and that can make some of us feel even more isolated. We talk with Dr. Pauline Boss, the leading expert on ambiguous loss, and we surveyed faith leaders from several traditions to hear from them how they work with individuals living with a terminal diagnosis. We speak with a death doula, a hospice nurse, an end-of-life massage therapist, and the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. Today, I share my intimate interview with our friend, Laura McGregor of the Hope Scarves Foundation and A Hopeful Life Podcast who died this past month of NBC. But before we start my interview with Laura, I want you to know that we also considered that we need lots of levity in these times. And so we have a very special Laughter as Medicine episode, followed by a deep dive into the complexity involved with access to psychedelics to treat existential distress in individuals like us living with a terminal diagnosis. The Road to a Cure returns and we take an important step back to remind ourselves of what we need to understand each and every day while living with MBC. We call this Road to a Cure MBC 101. In these episodes, we will look at communications with your oncologist, what to do first when you have had progression or need to change treatments and how to decipher all those newfangled tests and imaging that are part of oncology's drive for more precision medicine. We'll take a look at what so many living with hormone-positive MBC are concerned about, endocrine and CDK4-6 resistance, and what is promising in terms of research into this problem. We'll also take a look closely at leptomeningeal disease with Dr. Nancy Lin and Dr. Priya Kumthakar, and a conversation with Dr. Timothy Pluard. And because some of the hardest things we have to deal with do not go away after one episode, we're returning to the topic of MBC and parenting. We'll hear from parenting experts, parents living with NBC, and most importantly, from the kids themselves, all in May and June. You'll hear practical advice on how to talk to your kid or young person in your life about MBC, and you'll hear that the kids will be all right. Honesty and love can go a long way. Season four of RMBC Life is different from our other seasons because we're exploring experiences and emotions that often get overlooked. I genuinely believe that this season will be the season for learning and acceptance. I never met my guest, Laura McGregor, in real life. So many of you listening to this will know her from her work creating Hope Scars or listening to her podcast, A Hopeful Life, and many more will know her from her honest and unfurnished reports of her last year of life on Instagram. But Laura never met anyone who couldn't be a friend. And when we finally were able to have this conversation, late last november it felt like we've known each other for a long time and sometimes the cancer experience can be like that it's a lovely thing to know that even if we didn't have this horrible shared diagnosis i would like to think that we would have been friends regardless Laura is someone so many would have wanted as a dear friend. At 45, she'd lived with NBC since 2014, and prior to that had dealt with her early stage breast cancer after being diagnosed while pregnant with her youngest son. She was quite a remarkable human. In 2012, Lara founded Hope Scarves, which to date has sent over 20,000 scarves to people facing cancer in every state in the United States and 29 countries around the world. In 2014, when Lara was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, the focus of Hope Scarves broadened to include support for metastatic breast cancer research. During the years since, over $1.5 million has been raised to benefit research for metastatic breast cancer. Her incredible efforts were recognized many times throughout her life and most recently as the 2021 Hope College Distinguished Alumni and the selection as the 2021 L'Oreal Woman of Worth for her enduring philanthropic work. Laura was married to her husband Jay for 22 years, and they have two sons, Wills, 16, and Bennett, 14. Here's my interview with the one of a kind Laura McGregor, recorded November 30th, 2021.
0: I like to think that we laugh, we've laughed more than we've cried through our journey. Yeah, for sure. There has been. So many more tears this past year. And it's just, you know, I think it's just, we knew it was coming. It wasn't like it was like this thing we didn't expect, but you don't think you can ever quite prepare for it. And, you know, as many friends as I've watched progress and pass on, no two are the same. You know, there's no real like roadmap for this. And even just how to live in this stage. I always said, I worked really hard and I learned. to live well with metastatic disease and that wasn't a quick easy thing it was really hard to transition from being an early stage breast cancer survivor you know for seven years and having beat cancer and put it behind me and moved on and you know find my strength in my survivorship i owned all of that and loved it and then when i became metastatic you know i really had to re-examine my perspective on survivorship and learn how to live, you know, not in the perceived future, but really grounded in each day. And I'm, I did. And I lo- learned how to not let all my fears of tomorrow and progression and the sadness of watching friends die, steal the joy and the strength I had in those years of wellness. And I'm, I'm so, so fully grateful for that. And I had I had about seven years really of living so well with metastatic disease. I mean, I ran marathons and triathlons and I traveled around the world and I raised my kids and I grew this beautiful nonprofit organization. And I was, you know, like room parent at their school and, you know, able to just do tons of fun things with friends. And I just lived this like big, full, ambitious life. And I got really good at living well with metastatic disease. Indeed. Um, But then I had to transition to what I can't quite put into words other than like figuring out how to decline well. And that's where I am now, you know, that it is a very different stage of metastatic disease that I watched other people go through. But it was so different for everyone. There was no, no real, you know, path to follow. And even now, I don't really know what I'm doing or how this is going to go or how fast or slow or what's sure. going to happen. But it's a very different reality than living well, taking the medicines and waiting for scans and getting good scan results and planning the next trip and just, you know, like all the things that you can do when you have your health and i feel like i'm a fragment of myself i feel like i am living in someone else's body i have already the fullest expression of lara mcgregor is already gone i just i'm i can't fully be myself anymore and that's a really hard way to live you know i can't physically do the things that once brought me joy and then i realize it's even just as simple as a beautiful fall day i just want to go for a walk I can't even do that. I don't have the strength. I don't have the lung capacity and I've lived my whole life with like goals and challenges and digging in and working hard and figuring out what I have to do and persevering and being resilient. And all of that doesn't help me right now that I can't work harder at this phase. I have to rest. I have to be still. I have to slow down. I have to accept my limitations. And it's a completely different way of living. It's really hard. It's really hard for someone who's a visionary to not dream and not have hope. I mean I, I still have hope. I, I say all the time, anyone who follows me, you know, one of my things is always hope. I think the bravest thing we can do is always hope. And I um I do hope. It's just so different now and um, what that means. But you know, I don't I have to come to peace with our reality. And in the same way I had to come to peace with becoming metastatic almost eight years ago. You know, it's a constant roller coaster, this diagnosis. And mm. I just thought I had more time. I really did. It went so fast. Once my cancer, the cancer, I've really been working on semantics. I decided I'm going to stop calling it my cancer because I just don't really feel ownership. Okay. I don't want it. To, I don't not, want to be part of me. You didn't buy um, it? In that way. It's not like it's mine. I, has, I say the cancer. Like, don't say like my pneumonia, you know. Um,
1: <laughs> right. right. I, when
0: I got the cancer. And I got cancer, you know, it's really ever since it it mutated that we really started having these problems. So I was estrogen sensitive, my whole cancer experience. And in March of 2021, we were able to get a biopsy and found out that it was triple negative. So all the treatments, you know, that I'd been taking were off the table and kind of ever since then, we haven't been able to control it. So um, it's just been a whirlwind. Yeah, it's been such a whirlwind.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that in researching further to prepare to talk to you today, I just want to know a little bit more about Laura growing up, because while I understand that you're saying that you feel like just a shell of who you used to be, let's talk about that little girl. Well, I
0: grew up in a small town in Michigan and the shore of Lake Michigan. And I spent pretty much my whole life on the water. So, I really do feel like water is my soul.
1: Part mermaid. Um, Are you part mermaid? I am.
0: (laughs) I am, which is made having a Flarex catheter, which allows me, which doesn't allow me to get in the water. It's a really, really hard part of this current stage. But yeah, I, I grew up small town. I was always really ambitious and outgoing. My mom loves to tell a story that I started kindergarten when I was four, because I really wanted to go. And I guess back then in the early, late, whatever, early eight, late seventies, early eighties, it didn't have quite as many rules. So I guess I could go early. We practiced walking to school, which was like two blocks crossing a street. So we practiced that a couple of times with my mom. And then the first day of school, I was like up and in my like dress that I had picked out with my like backpack. And I just like took off and my mom it a little four, tiny little four-year-old. She was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to school my first day of kindergarten. And um, she followed me hiding <laughs> behind the trees and like in the bushes. <laughs> but I totally just like set <laughs> off two plaques across the wow. busy street to go to school as a four-year-old. And um, she's kind of like, I don't feel like you ever look back. Like you just kind of always had, you know, like just independence
1: and yeah.
0: Ambition. And, so, and you
1: uh, didn't have an older sibling. This is all no. innate. This is all yeah. just Laura. That's it. Oh, yeah. You just were born this way. I love yeah. that story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I had, I had a really great childhood. Our, our small town was like kind of quintessential small town America. Just lots of great friends. And I was really active in student government and leadership and sports. I played all the sports and I was in the school plays and musicals and really involved with my church. I was real active in our youth group. I think that that's where I really got my first understanding of the importance of service to others and volunteering, and you know, helping in the community. And I just love that. My parents, I think from an early age, really instilled a sense of commitment to community and responsibility for taking care of each other. So I've always had... A love of creating community and creating places where people can gather and feel supported and feel connected. And, and I spent a lot of time sailing and swimming and water skiing and just being on the water my whole life. I went to college at a little school called Hope College, which people find ironic. <laughs>
1: um, I, loved, I love a little irony. <laughs> <laughs> but in Michigan,
0: it's not like that ironic. It's just this like, great, uh, you know, private liberal arts school in Holland, Michigan. And so I went to Hope and um, had a great college experience and had opportunity. I was a communications and English double major. And I studied off campus in Philadelphia, my junior year, because I was really torn between like professionally, if I was going to do like advertising and like, you know, like corporate communications or nonprofit work. And so I arranged it. So instead of having one internship, I could have two and I oh, split my wow. time between working at Cigna Healthcare and this very corporate um, communications role where I had a, a stipend and an office and a name badge, this like beautiful internship. And then the other part of the time I worked at Philadelphia Cares and we like rented this one office in the realtor building in this downtown part of Philadelphia, with, like three people and no internet access and a really scrappy little organization. And within like two weeks of splitting my time between those two internship experiences, I was like fully committed to the nonprofit work. And I just felt like if I could use my writing and my organization, community building skills and marketing and public relations all the things that I loved to help the common good, why would I want to help a healthcare company further their their bottom line? And so- I really was a defining kind of moment for me. Wow, yeah. And set me on a course from there to have a career in nonprofit. And I've always worked in the nonprofit sector. I think the thing that's the common thread is just I love creating connections and a sense of community and a sense of love and support and just togetherness. Yeah. You know, I think just I feel like there's so much strength in that. And I, I worked at Hope College for a little bit after my graduation. And then I worked for the United Way. And from there, my husband and I moved to England for a little while. I took a little break. He was doing some, an assignment overseas. And then when I came back, we were moved to Birmingham, Alabama, which I thought was a terrible idea, but ended up really being a a great adventure for us. And um, I worked for the McWayne Science Center there. And... um, really furthered my fundraising skills. I, I became, actually became associate vice president of development for this big science museum and learned a ton about capital campaigns and fundraising and membership, and all this stuff. And um, that's where I actually was first diagnosed with cancer. We lived in Birmingham, I was 30 and seven months pregnant. And so I went through all my early stage treatment there in Birmingham, Alabama and our entire you know friends and family network. Was in Michigan that we created such a beautiful community of love and support in Birmingham that really carried us through. And after I was diagnosed, just you know I started having the idea for Hope Scarves, and you know I'd never created my own organization, but I'd had you know nearly twenty years of nonprofit experience and had done all kinds of fundraising and grant writing and community building kind of work. So it really helped position me to create my own organization. It's funny, when I was in Holland working at the United Way, I was in this like leadership program, Leadership Holland or something like that. And you had to write your mission statement for your life. I was like 22 years old. And then I I still have it because I like laminated it. And I stuck it in this box that's full of tons of stuff for my life. And I said, I will start, I'll start a nonprofit organization. And it's so interesting because I had no idea or really like passion For cancer, obviously, at that point in my life, I had a lot of other things I was passionate about: education, you know, food insecurity, how homelessness. Like, there's tons of stuff that I was interested in helping, because I never would have imagined. But I think that that's one of the things that's so beautiful is just the way our experiences shape our life. And I would never, I'm never, ever, ever, ever will you ever hear me say that I think cancer was a blessing or that it's been a gift. I would give it all away in a heartbeat. But since it did disrupt our life, I am grateful that something like Hope Scarves came out of it. And you know, I think the other thing I would say is me as a child is I've always been a storyteller. My mom is actually a li- or was a librarian and was a professional storyteller. So she would travel to schools and festivals and tell stories. And we actually like would travel with her and she'd enter me in like the kids storytelling competitions. So I've always loved storytelling and writing. And so I think that's a big part of who I am and who I, you know, who I was as a child.
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing that whole arc of yours. <laughs> I, I think that little girl racing to school at four is, is, it's a pretty perfect image. As I mentioned, you, you know, you have two boys. I have two boys. My boys are a little bit older than yours. How old are your boys now? They're 13 and 16. Right. Okay. And how old are yours? 22 now and 24. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we often hear from people who listen to the podcast, how do you parent at different stages? Of your child's life while you're living with NBC. And it's always an evergreen issue that so many of us who do have children or young people in our lives who we deeply love and care about. How have you navigated this whole past year with your boys?
0: You know, I think cancer and my boys is a little bit of a unique situation because neither of them actually know a reality where I didn't have cancer because Wills was two and I was pregnant with Bennett when I was first diagnosed. So their entire life, mom has had cancer. You know, for a lot of their early years, I was in remission. So Wills was nine, Bennett was six, I guess, when I was diagnosed NBC. So still pretty young, six and nine, but it wasn't like cancer was like this thing they'd never heard of, right? Also, I think having a mom whose job is cancer, and going to all the fundraisers where mom talks about cancer and helping, you know, wrap up the scarves for the people with cancer and taking the things to the mailbox for the people who have cancer. And when Bennett was little; he used to sit in his car seat, and every time he'd see a ribbon, like on the back of a car for like anything, like you know, support our troops or breast cancer or any any kind of ribbon, he would say, "Mommy, I hope scarves, mommy." Hope scarves. Oh, I love that. That's great. Like, any, any, all the other campaigns. Everybody, <laughs> any ribbon anywhere was a hope scarves ribbon. Oh, I love it. And I'd say, yeah, buddy, that's a hope scarves person. <laughs> they like hope scarves. Um, so they've just always had, can- you know, like cancer's been a part of their life just as much as soccer and
1: sure. adventures
0: and traveling. Sure. And so it was like a little bit weird. I think It's harder for me sometimes to to talk and share my experience on this topic Mm. with people for which cancer comes in like a tornado to their life at a point where their children have to process it because my kids didn't have to process it as much. But I think on the flip side, what's been hard is that as they've grown up, moms always had metastatic breast cancer. And they're my, I mean, you know, so the past eight years, so they're 16 and 13, Those are pretty formative years So we've always you, talked about what metastatic breast cancer is. Yeah. Like they know that there's no treatment. They know that there's, you know, or they, they know that there's treatments, but there's no, no cure. cure.
1: Right. They, they, I talk about my friends. who have passed mm-hmm. But about, you're running marathons and you're still Laura. You're still mom. Yeah. You're still exactly how you've always been. Right. Yeah. i fully
0: living and I'm up, yes. up on the stage raising money for metastatic breast cancer research and they come up on the stage with me and they're a part of this like full experience of advocating for and supporting people with metastatic breast cancer, but they don't see it as a threat to their mom. And then this past year, which really is, I have to go back kind of two years. It's such a blur because it also was COVID. So, I feel like that was just a double whammy for our family because we were dealing with so many different challenges and frustrations and hindrances to the way we usually do life that it's hard to kind of separate out. But what they saw was me declining, but it wasn't all at once. You know, it wasn't like I got hit by a car and I came in and I couldn't walk. It was over a year I gradually became weaker and. Treatments didn't work and treatments became more toxic and my breathing got harder and my body got skinnier. And that piece of helping them see that we've hit a turning point has been really challenging because I think still in their heads, though we have talked about this, I think they still think I'm going to be okay. And I have a counselor they have a counselor, we have a counselor as a family. There's this piece um, of coping that they have adopted. um, That's basically disassociation, which our counselor assures me is okay. So I think now where they are is my boys are, you know, approaching our current reality with a, a coping skill of Disassociation, which at first was really hard for me, but counselors have assured me is a a completely appropriate way for 13 and 16 year old boys to act, which is to kind of separate themselves from me and from the situation, right? To be more focused and more prioritized on their lives, which actually is also a rather appropriate. Way from any 13 and 16 year old boy to be, to think they're the center of the universe, you know, and to just be focused on what they're doing. And, and so our boys are really happy in their school and with their friends and on their sports teams, their social lives, but they're separating themselves from the heartbreak and the hurt that's here. So we're trying to work together to not bring grief into their happiness, but to also not have them disassociate so much that they're not fully present with what's happening. And what's hard is that none of us really know what's happening. So it's not like a doctor said, we don't have any more treatment options and you need to go on hospice and we think you have X amount of more time. I'm not at that point. I might have three months. I might have six months. I might have a year. We don't know. And so what's hard from a parenting perspective, what breaks my heart is I don't want to put that burden of the unknown on a a 13 and 16 year old boy when my husband and I in our late forties can't really make sense of it. So you don't want to take away their joy, I guess. So it's such a balance of how much information to share how much emotion to share with them and also how much to protect them when you just don't know what you're dealing with, what you're, what you're looking at.
1: Right. Right.
0: But a couple of the things that I have feel really good about from a parenting perspective is I show my vulnerability. I don't hide my frustration. So if I'm trying to change the laundry and I have to stop halfway up the stairs because I can't breathe and it makes me really frustrated because I used to run marathons. I sit there and cry and throw out a couple expletives and tell them how frustrating that is. And and I want them to see that. Like I want them to see me be mad and frustrated and the vulnerability in the situation is okay. And I also have like just more freely cried in Mm. front of them Mm. without hiding it. Like, at first I really didn't want to be sad for them to see me sad all the time. And now I just cry all the time and like just I told them we were gonna have sobbing Sundays and <laughs> it was gonna be like a family meeting. And right. We were all gonna get together and we were gonna complain about what was made us mad that week or what was frustrating about this really messed up reality we're living in. And what we miss about our old life, and we could just like let it all out. And we did it for we did it last Sunday. I have to try to remember to do it again. so how did how did that go? Well, you know, it was me mostly talking <laughs> and me trying to tell my husband, you know, like my husband like demonstrating his frustrations and feelings to them. And then when we'd ask them, how are they feeling?" they'd be like, "I oh, don't know. Right. Right. Like that's not a feeling. Like, what's a feeling? What's a feeling you're having right now? Uh sad. And I'm like, okay, great, good. All right. All right. And no, meanwhile, I'm like, I feel like I've let you down as a mom because I used to be so engaged in your life and now I feel so disconnected from you and your friend. I mean, like, and I'm like, you know, like emotion, emotion, emotion. And they go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't, you know, I mean, right. I keep saying it I was like, oh, my hope is, is that like, when they're, you know, in their thirties and they're married, they're going to be able to express their feelings. Right. And I want you to just look up the clouds and be like, that was you, Lara, like you did right, that, you know, right, right. right. They're not
1: doing it now. <laughs> right. But well, I think they're seeing f- yeah, it, you know, yeah. Find us a 16 and 13 year old young, young man who, who right. do that. So, Right. I think I think you're good. I think you're good. It's all appropriate. But as a mom, it's all about acceleration of the lessons yeah. that we want to impart to our children because everything is accelerated. You know? Yeah. One
0: of the things that I do see, even though they don't articulate it in feeling words, is that I see them being compassionate and helpful to me in ways that they wouldn't be if i was the strong fullest expression of myself sure you know i they see them come around the side of the car and put their arm out so that they can help me walk into the basketball game and sure i see them you know pick up my yeti tumbler and check and see if it needs fresh ice and water and fill it up and when they walk through the living room do you need anything, mom? You know, can I get you anything, mom? Like, I think that's my husband training them. <laughs> but that that brings me a little bit of peace. That, you know, if they saw me as like this fully capable, ambitious, strong person for what seems like their whole life. I, I do realize that it's such a small part of who they will be overall. But, you know, I hope that it planted some seeds for them to see me like that. And that seeing me weak and sad and suffering makes them,
1: makes them more compassionate. Yes. Yes. I hope, I hope for that as well. I wanted to ask you what you feel your legacy is for your boys Mm. or what do you hope your legacy will be for your boys?
0: Well, I hope that I, I, have shown them and instilled in them the importance of connection and community and taking care of one another. And that I don't know if they'll grow up to have careers, you know, in nonprofit or community activism or, you know, whatever. But my husband's a businessman and he still has those same values of caring and connection and that they just will recognize how they can make the world a better place and how they can use their skills and their strengths to help other people and especially those who are vulnerable and who need, um, who just need help and that they'll like not get caught up in their own lives or ambitions or aspirations to the point where they don't like recognize how important it is to take care of other people. And I also hope that they will live a life of adventure and like just of seeing new places and meeting new people. We have traveled so much as a family and done so many amazing things. I've always loved just seeing new places and, you know, meeting new people and seeing different perspectives and, just learning how different and wide and beautiful the world is and that they would have that same kind of wish to continue to travel and do things that take their breath away. And I love to jump off of things. I've taught them to jump off of lots of really dangerous things like trees, like scraggly trees hanging over like cliffs and that had like this little platform that I thought seemed like something you should jump off of and then realized it was terribly dangerous. And I had my <laughs> four-year-old up there with me and I love to jump off of things into water. <laughs> the, Lara, um,
1: the Lara Leap. I think that could be a thing. You got to do the Lara Leap. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've always
0: said, I've always said to, to moms to just like get your hair wet. Like I've never been the mom that like sits at the pool and just reads a book and suns I'm the mom that's like on the diving board and playing racing, swimming games with my kids and diving for rings underwater. And so I always say, just like get your hair wet. So yeah, I like I hope they just keep diving in.
1: Awesome. You know, I loved your interview on your podcast, A Hopeful Life, with the von Tongren's and the book, The Mm -hmm. Courage to Suffer. We will promote it widely. When I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed, I was a clinical therapist for an intensive outpatient program for young children between the ages of five and 12. And and so a, a good clinical text doesn't scare me, but it's written so beautifully that I actually think it has a wider audience that can really learn from I it agree. and grow from it. It really got me to think, it's really a building on the great work of Viktor Frankl and Harold Kushner, all of mm-hmm. the greatest hits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's about leaning in that life is suffering and that as we are trying to navigate our end of life, for me, I hope that I can navigate it with the courage to suffer openly in a way that doesn't alienate my family, but brings them in to the knowledge and the growth that can come from it. But mm-hmm. I understand how tough it is. <laughs> so I intellectualize suffering and the metastatic diagnosis a lot, but I I'm rapidly out of the intellectualization phase of my life, mm-hmm. and I'm into the to the actively declining phase. Like I'd say, my progressions over the last year, you know, I I didn't have an, an NAD at all, and so I've never heard those words spoken with my situation. But I'm running out of options for myself, so I I just want to thank you for that beautiful book recommendation. I think what's hard
0: about our reality versus like so many other like self-help texts or memes or books that you read is that it's all about like overcoming. And I think that's, what's so beautiful about the courage to suffer is that it's not about fixing the problem, right? It's about creating a life and a perspective Regardless of what comes next, so that's what I had been thinking. What I'd been really how I'd been living, and when I found that book, I was like, oh, "Because I am not a clinical psychologist; I'm an English major." <laughs> I was, "Oh my god, it's like based on facts, like, exactly. It's like a thing, like the thing I've been trying to say." Here's all this really smart, medically, scientifically proven kind of like concepts, right? And um, and that's what I think is hard as a metastatic patient who's declining is like, well I want I want to live this day with joy. I want to laugh. I want to be grateful. And I'm dying. Right. And there's just not a lot written like that, a lot to like absorb with that perspective. Right. Because so many things and I and really honestly that's why I created my hopeful life. That's why I created the podcast. That's why I'm trying to finish this book. It's everything that I'm doing is to tell that story.
1: Right. My right.
0: story is one of love and laughter and joy, not because I overcame cancer. Right. But because I lived joyfully with cancer and I found a way, like I always say, I just found a way to hold both hope and joy not hope and joy I found a way to hold (laughs) fear and joy in the same hand at the same time and that it's not one or the other like I am I am today living and dying right I am healthy and sick and that idea of like living a hopeful life That's what it means to live a hopeful life. It's not about overcoming the obstacle or beating the thing or, you know, it's about living with the trauma and the struggle as part of your story. Right. And that's, that goes beyond cancer. You know, there's people living that way who are living with addiction, who are living with the loss of a loved one, you Mm -hmm. know, that are living
1: with With traumatic injuries, right? Severe disabilities or chronic illnesses that are truly debilitating for them. Yeah. It's the yes. And it's like, we're, we're ultimate improv players in our lives Mm -hmm. because we're going, Oh, we've got to do the laundry because we want to be that parent supporting our child. And I can't get up the stairs. It's yes and, and it's yes, I'm going to go and have a Lisa day where I go see some art and I spend time with friends and I go to that great restaurant and I get on the train and I race to an appointment, say, and then I race back and meet my beautiful husband for a date night. And then we meet up with friends for drinks. Oh, I'm exhausted. I can't do any of that. And my hemoglobin is now... Requiring me to have a, 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 a blood transfusion. It's yes, and it's like we're improv players of our lives and we're having to hold grief and love at the same time, fear and joy at the same time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think this was so, like, what I want to tell so many early metastatic breast cancer patients, because I, I didn't really have anybody tell me this was like, keep living while you're living. Like how precious those years were. I was so fortunate. I, and again, I recognize I was an outlier. I had I had six years of NED. I mean, I was like, right. like little right. tiny like blips of a little bone metastasis here or there, but like absolutely nothing debilitating for so long. But when you're diagnosed, it's like the scary world of metastatic breast cancer. It's can be overwhelming. And I also acknowledge like completely that I had friends that were diagnosed MBC and passed on six months later. So you have no idea where you're gonna fall on the right. continuum, which That's is also right. part of really like the mind, yeah. you know, craziness that this is. Right. Um yeah, there's a there's a name for it, Laura.
1: <laughs> I mean, you can yeah. say it on the podcast. I didn't know if I could say you it. You could totally say I, it. Oh, okay, so, so let's so say it to together. It's, it's a total mindfuck. Fuck. <laughs> All right. Yes. And it's gonna go in because that's exactly what it is. It is a complete mindfuck. Exactly. Okay, carry on. It I just want. I mean, to you have to like <laughs> the
0: gymnastics you have to do. Yes. In your mind, and your heart, to live yes. with this yes. stupid disease. Yes. Is some, I mean, it's sometimes insurmountable, like literally like the things you have to keep doing. And I think you just have to like be prepared. Like this isn't (laughs) easy, but you still have, like, you can still have life. You can still have love. You can still have joy. Like all of that is possible. It is. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't have anybody really like telling me that with such like fervor that I want to tell people now and not at all to diminish like how hard it is, but I'm so glad that I figured out a way to live in the craziness with so much love and passion Mm -hmm. for as long as I did, because now, and when I'm laying on the couch all day, I don't have, I have no regrets. Like, I just feel like I lived I couldn't have lived it any differently. Like, I think nice. that's a, I read yeah. that somewhere that, like, the perfect, like, the best example of, like, a life well lived is like, I would go back and do it exactly the same. Hmm. Like, I would do it all right. again and I wouldn't yeah. change a thing, you know? And yeah. even all the hard parts, like, sure. Because I'm just, like, it's, I have figured out, I don't you know, I just, I'm, I'm grateful. And I, I just, yeah. the only problem is, is I just, I'm not done like I've I have so much more I want to do mm. and so many more adventures I want to take with my kids and experiences. I want to I want to see what they would be as 20 year olds. I want to know where they mm. go, to go to college. You know yeah. I just I'd love to just I know I'd love for us to continue to be a family of four. We call ourselves Team Mac. Yeah. And um I just I'm not I don't I have an insane amount of FOMO. Um just day to day, like let alone like dying, you know, like mm. I just don't want to miss out. Sure, so, and I don't want them to miss out on me. I think I'm a big part of what makes our family what it is, and I just mm-hmm. don't want us to stay the four of us, you know. So
1: it reminds me of uh Kate Bowler's more recent book, um, No Cure mm-hmm. for Being Human. Have you had a chance to read it yet? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So it reminds me of. You know, she has so many wise things to say. Um, A fellow traveler of ours, um, she, she, it struck me when she said, You know, humans since the dawn of time always trying to finish stuff up and we never do. Everything is always undone. It is the greatest human commonality that no matter what, there's never enough time. We never get all our stuff done. And For me, I keep saying that to myself a lot lately, that it's okay to to tamp down my anxiety of getting everything done that I want to get done for my kids, for my family, for my husband. And I think getting into the acceptance phase where, you know what, things will be different and I won't get everything done and I'll never be finished. And even if I ended my life at 95, like my Nana, I still probably wouldn't be done because Mm -hmm. there's so much to do and so much we always want to um, accomplish. So that really struck me. Love Kate Bowler, actually. Um, I know.
0: I'm trying to get her to write the forward to my book.
1: (laughs) Oh, there you go. Well, let's put that out in the universe because I think that would be a great connection. A great, a great thing. I'm also thinking of Paul Kalanithi. There's so many authors that have saved my life at various points during my metastatic disease, starting with Nina Riggs with The Bright Hour. Have you read that one? I do. I have that one. <laughs> I do. It's, it's just a beautiful, yeah. beautiful book. Sunita Puri, That Good Night is also an excellent one. It's a, it's a wonderful memoir. It's Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. She's a hospice palliative care doctor in okay. uh, California. And she writes beautifully about her experience of witnessing and the privilege of witnessing people's end of life. Mm. But in thinking about Paul Kalanithi, When Breath Becomes Air, that was another one that I I read. And just all of these little nuggets of wisdom became like parts of the watch mechanism in my soul. And each one Mm. would just tick over a little piece of my soul and help me in the next six months of my time living with this disease. And Paul Kalanithi, I think I need to get back and reread it. It's just such a beautiful thing. But I want to share a quote from his wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and she writes in his book, Paul faced each stage of his illness with grace, not with bravado or a misguided faith that he would overcome or beat cancer, but with a authenticity that allowed him to grieve the loss of the future he had planned and forge a new one. He cried on the day he was diagnosed. He cried on the last day in the operating room. He let himself be open and vulnerable, let himself be comforted. Even while terminally ill, Paul was fully alive. And despite physical collapse, he remained vigorous, open, full of hope, not for an unlikely cure, but for days that were full of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Lara, you've been walking the same path and living it and showing it and showing everyone how you're personally doing it. And I love that you articulate that it's different for every single person. So that's why reading these books, being inspired by you, Lara, it's just little nuggets that help turn me around and change a day's perspective for myself. So, because here's a quote from the great Laura McGregor, full of hope, not for an unlikely cure, but for days that were full of purpose and meetings. And of course, that's what Viktor Frankl talks about. So here's my question for you after that long preamble is, how do you feel about leaving things undone? Hmm. Well, the healthy Laura McGregor
0: would be like, oh no, no. no, no." (laughs) I check everything off the list. I get things done. I love a good checklist. (laughs) And I have let so much go already. Mm Okay. My gosh, this morning stairs. My laundry room is off of our it's like a big family room in our basement, which obviously I don't go into because I can't get up the stairs. And I walk down there. And I was like, oh holy hell. <laughs> like what in the world? That's right. I mean it's like a bomb <laughs> went off down there. And right. Um, right. I wouldn't have let that last for a day in my old life. Like that, like the children would not be out. They wouldn't be having any kind of like activities until that was cleaned up. And you know, it's just like I've I've let so much be undone that is less important right now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um my counselor and I were talking about it the other day that like as life nears death the circle gets smaller Mm -hmm. and so like when your life is big and full and healthy there's all kinds of things in the circle like making sure your kids clean up the family room and that there's not like a half-eaten you know, melted jug of ice cream on the side table. Um, Right, I'm familiar. But like, as the the circle gets smaller, as life comes closer to death, the people in the circle get fewer, the activities get fewer, and it just becomes like the essential part of your life. And I don't think my circle is like all the way small yet, but it's so much smaller than it was. Yeah, And at first it didn't make sense to me, but there's kind of like a freeing of things being a little undone and, and just not being in the circle,
1: mm-hmm.
0: things that used to be important or things that I wanted to do. And, and I still have a lot of legacy things that are important to me that are still in the circle, but there's a lot of things that I've let go of. I've let go of, hope Scarves, right. organization. I hope, my created out of my cancer experience and ran, you know, for 12 years and put my heart and soul into so much time, I have hired an executive director and I have stepped away and a piece of it will always be in the circle, but running it is no longer in the circle. And I I could have never imagined that, you know, but she said, you know, the thing, the last thing that is, that leaves this circle is your soul Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is your spirit and she was like lara your spirit in the big circle is this like ambitious laughing you know constantly like going and doing and you know visionary person and then as your circle got smaller your spirit is at the center still there it's all still there it's all still you but it just changes and it just becomes a different expression but that it doesn't that's the part that doesn't go away.
1: Right, right. And and
0: she was like, you know, I've I've actually never anyone who's died, I've never experienced death
1: personally.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. But she has. And you know, she was like, that circle at the end is is really small, really quiet. And she's like, but the spirit is physically so strong. And so I think that when I think about like things being undone, I think about just Thinking about what's in my circle and what needs to stay in the circle or in the circles it changes in size. Some days it feels bigger, some days it feels smaller, but I've already, I've already, I've already let things go. So I'm making peace with that.
1: Do you feel that you can still be hopeful while you're planning this end of life as we both navigate our decline? Absolutely.
0: And I feel like it's just what hope, you know, hope is different for everyone. It what is. hope means is different sure. um, for each person. And even for me on a day-to-day basis, like yeah. I hope I might like this morning, I was like, God, I hope I can get up these stairs. <laughs> right, um, right, right. You know, like, right. I hope I, I have, I'm going out to lunch today with some friends and I was like, I, I hope I can have a, a moment where I feel normal and can enjoy a nice lunch with, you know, some friends. So there's a practical hope. And then there's just hope that for me, when I think of hope, it's just, you can't see. Um, I think other people call it faith. I, I just, I call it hope and I don't, you know, I, I see hope as something that's not based on the outcome that You know, you can hope for clean scans, but really my hope is bigger than what the scan outcome show, you know, the scan shows. It's for peace in my heart and love. For me, hope transcends the hope on this bigger scale, capital letter hope is just bigger than what any of us can kind of understand in a day-to-day way as humans. Yes. I am a faithful person, I am a spiritual person and for me, all of that manifests itself in the word hope. Right. So I, I I do, I have, I have hope. I have incredible hope.
1: Yeah. Well, I can feel it. You know, I know on your podcast, you do a lightning round or you ask all of your guests, what is a hopeful life for you? And I'm just glad that I'm getting this conversation with you, Laura. I know that If I had been on your podcast, you would have asked, okay, Lisa, what's your hopeful life? And for me, I've been really noodling on this. And I think for me, the real honest answer is a hopeful life is flexible. Mm -hmm. It's flexible. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what you've been saying in in a much more beautiful, eloquent way. I wanted to ask you, what does a good death look like for you? Mm -hmm. I have been...
0: Like googling that, which <laughs> I don't recommend. <laughs> no, A really bad idea. <laughs> right, um, right, right. Like, right. I'm like, how do I find the people who are like doing like like you can do like really beautiful like you can do really beautiful bespoke weddings and uh, uh, that's you right. can like have all these other experiences. I'm like, is somebody doing this for death? Like, where? Like, where is this? Like, right. so I have been like so I don't recommend googling it seriously it's not a useful thing um <laughs> I've been finding by way of connections you know just organizations and people that are doing death differently like I learned about death doulas yes which I was like yes please like what right More, exactly. you know, like I it just it's part of life right yeah, it, exactly. I Someone I was talking to the other day I was on a podcast and she was like the thing is she's like everybody's so scared of death She's like, it's perfectly safe. (laughs) (laughs) That was an awesome quote. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's like, absolutely. Like, I don't know what we're all afraid of. It's like perfectly safe. Like it's going to happen, you know? Right. "Right." So I am actually in an odd way, pulling together all the information I can about this experience to make the best choices and have it reflect who I am because I don't want my death to be the sterile Medical traditional experience. Nor do I want my funeral to be that way. So I'm no. I'm like listening to podcasts. It's like I'm reading books. I'm trying to follow people. You know, follow this one group out of Heather in England. I can't even remember the name, but um, it's like beautiful um, funeral home. That's just doing really amazingly environmentally conscious, creative, really personalized funerals and. Um, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I don't have a good, I don't have a plan for it yet. Mm-hmm. Again, like a planner that I am. i like, right. I have, but I do have an artistic director for my funeral. I've already connected oh, yes. with my friends who right. I've shared like some of my visions and some plans and right. we're already working on that. Which
1: may seem strange. It doesn't seem strange to me at all. I'm right. There with, <laughs> I'm right there with you. It's like let's make this. Uh, let's make this party a good one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like I just yeah. I want to do it differently. I want it to do it like sure. me. Exactly.
1: When I think about the
0: actual like death, you know, how do I create this experience that will be traumatic for my family? It will be traumatic for my children. But how do we make it beautiful? How do we make it a part of life that is as seamlessly connected as? birthdays and Mm -hmm. weddings and actually in a way, what a gift that I have to be able to do this. I I just had a I had a friend, at least on Thanksgiving Day, a college friend who was running on his treadmill as his family was preparing Thanksgiving dinner and awaiting for all of our guests to arrive. And he dropped dead. So he was 47. And I just think about Tyler, I think about like That and I'm still just kind of absorbing the like facts of it that this happened to this family. And here I am with this like long, prolonged, ongoing like agony of a death. And I'm not trying to figure out which one's better, but it all just sucks. Mm -hmm. But death is all around us, it's part of living. Right. And so if I'm given the chance to create or think about how this might look for me, you know, I will. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure that all
1: out. Well, that's something that I'm hoping that you're going to share with everyone as you're figuring it out. Because I will.
0: I will. I, you know, I, I sometimes I'm a little bit of an oversharer. Not sure if you've noticed that.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to ask you about, that's just incredible, actually. I, I think your social media presence over the past year And it's been going on for longer than that, but I would would argue that in the past year, people will use words like brave and bold and courageous, and all of those things are true when describing you, but it's that ability to be vulnerable, which is Mm -hmm. so powerful. Talk to us about the decisions that you made to be as vulnerable, if it even was a decision and a choice.
0: You know, it's interesting. It kind of wasn't. It kind of was like, I don't want to do this alone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to use my voice and my experience to help other people find perspective in their lives and to help understand metastatic breast cancer. And if I'm going to go through this, I want it. I want to use it. Not as a, I wouldn't say it's a platform. That seems little like not the right word but if I could use that if my experience and my story could just help someone in their journey and their experience
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I didn't want to sit there in that waiting room by myself I wanted to turn the camera on and talk about it and Mm -hmm. I think that comes back to just my love of community like I'm not able to do what I've always done at Hope Scarves or travel the country and do public speaking events or attend conferences and host workshops and all the things I was doing at Hope Scarves. So instead, I just decided to use social media. And sometimes I'm a little bit like, oh, that's a lot of people who just watch that. Like, I get, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't realize
1: mm-hmm. how
0: many it is. And maybe I should be more cautious in what I share. But I also feel like it brings me joy to do it. Mm-hmm. and when i read the comments and people share how much it helps them it's just mm-hmm. so empowering and and it's kind of the community i have you know that i have right now beyond my my friends and family and you mm-hmm. know the people i am close with in person sure and at some point i do think that as my circle gets smaller that mm-hmm. won't be in it mm-hmm. i don't you know but right now it feels like it's something that i want to continue to do And it's just been amazing. I mean, the people I've connected with,
1: it's been really incredible. Well, it is incredible. And it's like your virtual circle is really quite large now. And so it's an interesting thing to transition from that and, and to this time of maybe whenever you get to that point of smaller circle, you know, I, I. I'm glad to hear that you have a family counselor. The boys have a counselor. You have a counselor. Have you always been as focused on mental health care as you are now as a family and as an individual?
0: I have been as an individual. I have not been as much as a family and as with my kids. And that certainly has grown out of this experience. But it is something that I have always felt was very important and had to work through a lot of things as I was growing up and just making peace with some of my own trauma far before cancer. And so I, I think I, you know, I started at a young age helping process my feelings and making peace with my experiences and I've just always felt it as such a great resource. So I do believe very strongly in mind health and has been a great resource for me since I was a teenager.
1: Mm. I'm very, very sorry to hear that you had that trauma and that abuse when you were younger. Very sorry to hear that. Sorry that happened to you. But I am, I'm always glad to hear when uh, people are able to access mental health care. I think that just like the lessons that we learn to live with while living with metastatic disease are lessons that everyone can learn or have access to. I just think that society needs to be more open to to all aspects of health, mental and physical.
0: I agree. I mean, I'm such an advocate for the whole body through metastatic breast cancer that I wish the medical community was more Supportive of, or so many of the things that I think have helped me are not things that were prescribed by my doctor. And I have a great doctor, but that's just not how they're equipped. Sure. And I think that some places are are doing much better and are continuing to to recognize the importance of complementary therapies. Sure. uh, Which I I just I think mental health is at the top of that list.
1: Mm. Gotta be. Oh, for sure! Oh, for sure. Well, I wanted to give you the opportunities before I close to talk about anything that you want.
0: Well, I hope—I have no idea—but I would hope that my book is available for purchase. Yeah, Uh, I have been working really hard on it, and really is when we, you know, we talk about things that are left undone. It is not something that I want to be left undone. I wanted to have. At least a really good, hard, solid copy set by the end of the year, which is quickly approaching, but we're making good progress. So, my book is called A Hopeful Life, and it's divided into three segments. The first section is called My Hopeful Life, and it's a collection of my writings, essays of living with cancer and metastatic disease, and just the way I have found to live a hopeful life. The second section is called Our Hopeful Life, and it's a collection of stories of people who have faced all kinds of adversity and have found a way to live a hopeful life, not because their problem is solved, but because they have learned to accept struggle as part of their story. And the third section is called Your Hopeful Life, and it's a journal full of writing prompts and life prompts to help you find a way to live a hopeful life and articulate what that means for you. And I'm really excited about pulling this book together because it, I think, reflects so much of who I am and not only my own essays, but the the story section just really represents so much of Hope Scarves and my love of of storytelling and capturing other people's stories. And while all the stories are so different, there's this common ground in our shared experience. And I'm really, I think it's going to be a really beautiful piece that I can leave behind and will be something that, you know, just will be a part of me that will continue to remain on earth. Even when I'm not here in my human suit and, So I'm really I'm really hopeful that that will be available for purchase.
1: Well, I want to close with the quote from Harold Kushner and he's talking about in the foreword to a new publication of Victor Frankl's, you know, Man's Search for Meaning and and Harold Kushner says, suffering in and of itself is meaningless. We give our suffering meaning by the way in which we respond to it. And then he goes on, And says that, you know, what he sees as Frankel's lasting insight for all of us is: forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. So we've got a lot of freedom and we've got a lot of choices in this way. Exactly. It's
0: so true. It's so true. And I think also important not to put too much pressure on ourselves that sometimes we respond in beautiful, brave, vulnerable ways. Right. And sometimes we curl up in a ball in the corner and can't figure out how to function. (laughs) And um, that power to choose is so, so powerful, but not to let that you know, not to let that consume you, that you're not doing it right, or someone else is doing it better. You know, and so we have to give ourselves grace to just do the best we can and to just live life one day at a time. And some days we can choose to do, you know, really beautiful, brave things, and other days we can choose to watch Netflix all day.
1: <laughs> and that's okay, and that's actually really okay. So. Thank you so much, Laura, for your for your soul today. Thank you for sharing it with me. I really appreciate you. It's
0: been my honor. Thank you for your such authentic interest in hearing my story and having this conversation together.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the time today. I'm glad we could do it. When Lara died on January 18th, 2022, at the age of 45, I reached out to the multi-talented April Stearns, founder and editor-in-chief of Wildfire Magazine and The Burn Podcast. I wanted to talk with a friend who also was touched by Lara's life and indeed learn more on how April had been working with Lara on creating this legacy of a book called A Hopeful Life. I first asked April about the editing process for Laura's book.
2: Sure. So I think it started here and there. Little bits of conversations Laura and I were having when she would attend various writing workshops I had done. She would sometimes be in a pop-up or as part of someone else's, and at one point, I did a workshop specifically for her community, for the Hopeful Life community, mm-hmm. um, or rather, I should say the Hope Scarves community, actually. Right, sure. And after that, she reached out to me and said, I really want to write this book and I just need a little bit of guidance. So at that point, we had a conversation and I talked to her a little bit about structure and how you could make a book, a memoir that is a collection of essays. And I just gave her all of my knowledge that I had to share. And she went off and tried to write. And eventually she came back to me a few times and said, I need a little something. I need a little kick in the pants. Let's have that conversation again. I really want to do this. So we would talk again and then she would go away. And eventually she wrote me an email that said, I'm having a hard time for some reason, holding myself to this grindstone. I don't know why, like there's nothing else I want to do. And yet it's hard. We know it's hard to make time in the day. It's hard. Things just Mm -hmm. creep in. So at that point I said, it sounds like what you really need is a book coach, like you don't necessarily need an editor yet. You just need someone to feel accountable to. So I think that was about a year ago. And she said, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I need. So we started a relationship of a, it was happening in a drive folder where she would write at night and then other times and just start dumping stuff into this drive folder. And I think knowing that I was on the other end of it and I was going to be reading really helped her feel that motivation that was lacking before. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I was doing for her is as I was reading pieces, I was saying, oh, I would love to hear more about this or how does, I had questions. So how does this tie into this? And I started to take on a little bit more of an editor role for her, mostly drawing out scenes. I'm a huge fan of writing in scenes and I like to have the reader really be able to envision what life is like, what was happening. So sure. Was helping Laura draw that out. And as she was writing and as this year progressed, it got harder and harder for her. And she always had the fire to write the stories, but she was telling me separately from the writing that it was growing harder to put herself back in the shoes of her herself from years prior when things were so much easier or more effortless really Mm. in a lot of ways. Sure. She told me it was joyful to relive that time, but also challenging, very challenging. And I think in that way, she was real time grieving her life when having to say goodbye. And we talked about that a lot about how do you end something you're not ready to end? It was really powerful to watch her doing this work on her book in conjunction with this real work of dying as well. But yeah, so the book continue to progress in that way. It's an actually three-part book. So I was really focused with her at that time on the memoir part of her book. There's another section, a second section that are beautiful essays from other people from the hope scarves community who have lived a hopeful life despite challenging circumstances. Right. Laura didn't want the book to only be cancer. She wanted to have this book reach people whoever needed it all over, you know, the world and in mm-hmm. our various circumstances. So there's 7 to 10 essays in there from people who've just experienced tremendous things and have gone on to build a different life. I don't want to say Despite it, it's taking the lessons learned there and not stopping going on to something else, something incredible, just like Laura did, you know, with hope scarves in this book. And then the third section, Laura's vision was that a reader would then be able to apply this kind of uh, lesson to their own life, but might have a hard time seeing the translation between reading someone else's hopeful story and then looking at their own life So I've written the third section with her, which is a journal, a workbook of writing prompts to help you begin to live your own hopeful life in Laura's, hopefully in Laura's memory, but I'm sure the book will reach people who don't know Laura too. Sure. So right around the time that Laura was starting to to really decline, she passed everything over to her executive director. And there is another woman on the team as well, who's doing the work of gathering the final essays for section number two. So it's maybe 80% done at this point. We have a lot of the various pieces. The designer, Hannah, has created a beautiful design for it, but we're pulling still some various pieces together. and. Right after Laura passed away, we decided to set it down for a moment and just let, let the dust settle, especially for Anna Laura at Hope Scarves. She was handling a lot of logistics around Laura's passing. Mm -hmm. So We're having a meeting coming up to move into the next step, which will be moving through to publishing our foot's hovering over the gas pedal, I would say right now to finish it up. But we all know how incredibly important it was to Laura to know as she was dying, that the book was not going to die with her by any means. So we Mm -hmm. all made a big commitment to each other and to her. And I was emailing her up until I think the day before she passed away. About it, she just needed to know that it was in good hands, and we let her know that it's happening for sure. I'm so happy for her.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, me too. It, and it's been that a little she bit. Got that? Yeah, I agree. Although I will say too, and I think you'll understand this, it made her passing away a little surreal for me because I was still very much living her story and steeped in her words. And, and then this visual I have of her life that I can't, I don't know that I've completely comprehended that she's not going to still be there when I have a question or something come up. Right. Um, of course. It's a very interesting thing. This is my first time being someone's book coach. And I've certainly not had someone pass away in the course of working on writing together. So it'll be an interesting right. process, but I'm so glad for her community, but especially for Jay and the boys to have this, this beautiful work that she created her legacy.
1: Yeah. She has so many. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. The list is pretty long, but your gift to her is profound, really profound. And to the community at large, I think it'll I think absolutely go beyond cancer. And how nice is that? I often feel like those of us living so firmly with no choice of our own in cancer land and in stage four cancer land, it feels like we are given sometimes the privilege of this knowledge of the fragility of life, certainly, but also just how important it is to not avert our eyes or our beings from suffering and from the hard things in life that our society so often tries to paper over with glossy this and fantastic that and i think it sometimes feels to me like we're asked to carry the burden of society's lack of lack of of awareness that with life comes death and with life comes all these challenges and that it doesn't mean that there's no joy in any of that. It just means it's more painful if you ignore it because it's inevitably there. So it does feel like we're like canaries in the coal mine of our collective societal you know, ill in terms of not facing the realities of life in a way that actually harms us and the bright, shiny objects that we all pursue are maybe not feeding our souls like they mm. should. So, I do feel that way sometimes. And it's so great that Laura's legacy in this book is going to be out there for others to think about, to scratch that itch, test themselves and how they are truly living a life and what does really, what is being hopeful? But right. so interesting. Being hopeful in spite of a terminal diagnosis is such a difficult concept for people to understand when you're also rooted as Laura was so well rooted in the reality of her disease. So how do you hold both of those things, which is something she talks about very well, and she articulates it so beautifully. That's the essence of life. let's be hopeful, but let's also have very firm grounding in the reality that life isn't always a bowl of cherries or whatever. It's going to, it's going to have some other things. I think that's
2: the difference between what we've come to know as toxic positivity and an actual hope. Yeah. I think hope is, and I think Laura would agree with this because her book really illustrates it well, but hope is like you say, being eyes wide open to the actual reality and living that experience as well as being grateful for and aware of the beautiful side of it too. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad you brought all that up because I think that it would be a disservice to Laura to think that her book was more in that vein of the toxic positivity, like, mm. you know, good vibes only yeah. raw kind of <laughs> right. thing. Yeah. Her book is so raw and real about her, all of her emotions. And mm-hmm. one of the big emotions was was anger and despair and and a sense of being robbed. And that's what makes it a really powerful tool for someone else. Because once you are in there with her, you know what the stakes are, what she was facing, and somehow she was showing up with hope for herself and the people around her.
1: I'm wondering what your thoughts are about reframing hope. That you can start off with hope when you're diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to be based in reality. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to be the patient that I need to be. And I have hope that I will not see recurrence. Mm -hmm. And for those in our community where recurrence does happen in spite of everything, then there's this, another kick at the can of hope, hoping that this first treatment is one that I'll be on for a really long time, hope that maybe I'll be one of those unicorns that will live 10 years, beat all the odds. And then when that doesn't happen, you need to reframe the hope, reframe it to okay, I'm not hopeful necessarily that the next scan is going to be completely clear, but I'm hopeful that I will be well enough to go see my son, that I will be well enough to travel when COVID ends, that Mm -hmm. I will be able to enjoy this cup of hot chocolate with my dog at my feet, um, enjoying this beautiful wood-burning fire without feeling any pain for an hour. It's mm-hmm. a reframing, it's a scaling yes. down, it's a change of what hope means, but that's I think where you can find the joy even mm-hmm. in those final, you know, years, months, moments of your life. And right. people maybe don't think of it that way. So often right. people think like hope and prayers for a cure and it's yeah. No, I'm actually hoping. I know I'm based in reality. A cure is not coming anytime soon, but I hope it's, yeah, that Yeah,
2: it's reframing exactly as you said, and that isn't that isn't a sad thing. It's not like runner-up prize while I didn't get the big thing. So, I'm going to have this other thing instead and feel bitter about it. It's more mm-hmm. of a full, I think, a full mental shift to, mm-hmm. okay, so what does hope mean in this reality? And mm-hmm. then applying it to that. And then you just keep recalibrating. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's that recalibrating that makes hope and gratitude and seeing beauty all in the same kind of kaleidoscope of emotions, which doesn't mean that you can't also be sad, upset, angry, and all Mm -hmm. of those things too. But it is a recalibration, like you said, of, okay, what is my very present moment here? How can I be present in it so I can enjoy it? And that's where the hope is too. And that
1: is applicable to everyone. Exactly, It is not just people living with cancer. And now, to end this season four premiere episode, here is another piece of beauty for you all. Many of you will recognize the gorgeous voice of Jane Marchowski, also known as Nightbird, who won the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent last year with her song, It's Okay. She died this past week from cancer at the age of 31. Here is Nightbird and her song that cheered so many of us. I moved to California
3: in the summertime. I changed my name thinking that it would change my mind I thought that all my problems they would stay behind I was a stick of dynamite and it just was a matter of time Oh dang, oh my, now I can't hide Said I knew myself, but I guess I lied It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay If you're lost, we're all a little lost And it's alright It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay If you're lost, we're all a little lost And it's alright, it's alright It's alright, it's alright, it's it's alright Pages, but I burned them all. Yeah, I burned them all. I blow through yellow lights and don't look back at all. I don't look back at all. Yeah, you can call me reckless. I'm a cannonball. I'm a cannonball. Don't know why I take a tightrope and cry when I fall. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost, and it's alright. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost, and it's all right, it's alright. It's all right, it's all right, it's alright.
1: This podcast was produced by me, Lisa Laudico. It is part of the grief, loss, and end of life planning series. With team members, Natalia Green, Ashley Fernandez, Deltra James, Ellen Landsberger, Linda Weatherby, and Shante Drakeford. Expert sound design by Bill Smith. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Special thanks to Stephanie Poland, Share Cancer Support's program manager, who has helped our podcast immeasurably over the past eight months. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday and Wednesday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.
3: It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost and it's alright. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost and it's alright, it's alright. It's alright, it's alright, it's alright. Yeah. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay.